Good morning, Grace Church. How are you? It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you guys are here. Uh, I want to briefly add on to the announcement that Liz gave about our kids joining us in worship. So uh, over the last 18 months, we've been trying to figure out, like, how do we integrate uh, everyone into the, the life of the church in such a way that builds resiliency in all of us? And so prior to this, uh, these changes, your kids, if, if you have kids and you, let's pretend you went to Grace for 18 years, you, your kids would be in the kids' ministry till they're in fifth grade, and then in sixth grade, they would have gone to the youth ministry, and they would have stayed. Uh, youth had their own Sunday thing. And so from age birth to 18, you, you and your kid would have run parallel paths at Grace Church. You would have never gone to church with them. And then when they uh, graduated high school, you would have said bye to your child and cried, right? Uh, and I know some of you are like, Josh, what's the problem? That sounds amazing. Yeah, like <laughs> my kids, I don't see them. Like, that sounds great. Uh, so we, we think that it would be better to integrate our kids into the life of the church. And so we've been having our youth group come at the 9 a.m. and they sit up front and they don't laugh at my jokes and they look at their phone the whole time. It's great. It's, it's very important for them to do that. Uh, and then uh, the hope is in, in a couple Sundays we'll be having our kids coming in for the first few songs and we'll dismiss them to age-appropriate worship. But we want our kids to see us, lift our hands in worship, see us sing. Uh, as they get older, they can read the lyrics on the screen and they'll be able to engage in these songs that explain the gospel. And so we hope to integrate. Will it be chaotic? Yes. Uh, but if you're a parent, you know that when you had kids, they changed your life. Before I had kids, my relationship with Jesus was amazing, and now it is not. Um, I would get up early, drink my coffee, read my Bible, and I remember ha having Harper, and I sat her on my lap, and I'm reading my Bible, and no kidding, my daughter grabbed a piece of the Bible and tore a page out of it. And I was like, that's like a little sacrilegious sinner. So it changes things. Is it going to change things? Yes. Will Bibles be ripped? Probably. Uh, I think God's okay with it. So... That is coming for us, um, but we are excited about it. Okay, announcement over. If you have your Bible, would you turn it to Mark chapter 13? We're going to be there in just a moment. We are in week 42 of the book of Mark. I reiterate that, and I counted because the stuff we are talking about today is absolutely crazy, and I need 42 weeks of trustworthiness of Jesus in order for us to tackle the topic at hand. Because up to this point, we've been dealing with like what's happening moment by moment with Jesus. But today, we turn our attention to the future. Um, the last few chapters we've been covering, scholars call the controversy narrative. So Jesus was in the temple. All the religious leaders are going to him. And what are they trying to do? Create controversy. They're bringing up uh, claims, trying to trap him in his words. And so this is the controversy narrative. The next two chapters, uh, Mark 14 and 15, are called the passion narrative narrative. This is like Jesus, think of the Passion of the Christ movie, Jesus being falsely accused, wrongly tried, goes to the cross, that's what's coming. So between the controversy and the passion is Mark chapter 13, and scholars call it the Olivet Discourse, because they're on the Mount of Olives, Olivet, and they're having a conversation, discourse. Uh, and you go, okay, great, what is the subject matter of the Olivet Discourse? Also found in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. The subject matter of the Olivet Discourse is the end of the world. So if you brought your friend to church today, welcome, friends. We are talking about the end of the world. So if you're into doomsday or the apocalypse, I got good news for you. Here we go. I know, I know when you hear the end of the world, your mind goes to many places. Maybe you're picturing the guy on the side of the road with the sign. It's like, the end is near, the end is near, repent, sinners. 
or maybe uh, you, your mind goes to just like the zombie apocalypse movies. So uh, I listed a few of my favorites. Armageddon. Is there a better movie than Armageddon? Bruce Willis when he pulls the thing and Ben Affleck. Are you kidding me? I'm going to cry just thinking about it. Armageddon. Uh, Book of Eli. I am legend. He was blind the whole time. I am legend. No? Nobody? Okay, great. Um, a Quiet Place, The Road, Independence Day. So all these movies come to mind. Have you guys seen these? Zombie apocalypse movies exist as well. Or maybe when I say the end of the world, your mind goes to the 1987 hit song by R.E.M. called It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. Anybody? Anybody? Yes, thank you. My God, these young people. Google it. You'll be like, what am I listening to? And then the chorus will hit and you'll be like, ah, I know this song. So uh, when I was a teenager, I would <laughs> turn out the lights and read the book of Revelation with a flashlight just trying to scare myself. I'm like, what's the end of the world? What's going on here? Are these helicopters? What's, are these flying beasts? The angels? Scary. Uh, fun fact about Grace Church San Diego. Grace Church San Diego used to be called Scott Memorial Baptist Church. And for 25 years, Scott Memorial Baptist Church was pastored by a man named Tim LaHaye. You're like, Josh, I've heard that name Tim LaHaye before. Yes, you have. Tim LaHaye wrote a famous series of books called the Left Behind series, tackling the end of the world. I brought a picture of my bookshelf right here. Tim LaHaye. He used to pastor this church. If you didn't have that on your bookshelf in the 90s, were you even a Christian? I, I don't know. So for me, I changed the book of Revelation for Left Behind, and I would read that with a flashlight at night and get terrified. So all of us come into the end of the world with baggage. We all have presuppositions. But today, Jesus turns his teaching to the apocalypse. And the genre here of the Olivet Discourse is called apocalyptic eschatology. Isn't that fun to say? Apocalyptic eschatology. The final events of world history or the ultimate destiny of humanity. So this genre is different. It's got metaphor. It's prophetic in nature. And so uh, my hopes are high this morning, and I think Jesus wants to teach us something really beautiful. Uh, but we're going to walk through this, read a verse, talk a little, read a verse, talk a little. So here we go. Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says this. <clears throat> As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings... Talking about the temple. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So this is a little intense for Jesus. The, the disciples are like architecture fans. And they're leaving the temple. They're leaving the controversy narrative. And the disciples are like, man, this temple's so beautiful. Jesus, look at the rocks. Look how great it is. And Jesus is like, take a good look, boys. It's all coming down. <laughs> You're like, man. Jesus needs a snack or something like he's mad at the religious teachers, but this seems strong. This seems too strong. But the truth is Jesus is seeing into the future the reality of the temple. And so the temple was, was beautiful, polished limestone, trimmed in gold. The building would have shined and gleamed as you approached it in Jerusalem. It looked like a city on a hill, a magnificent achievement. The temple was designed to take your breath away. It started construction in 20 BC and ended construction in 64 AD. 80 years the temple was being built. 80,000 workers. The size of it was 36 acres guarded by a retaining wall. 36 acres. You're like, is that big? Uh, yeah, it's big. There's 350 basketball courts could fit in this place. So I know you've been to like Anytime Fitness. Think of 350 basketball courts. It would take 25 minutes to walk around the outer edge. 
25 minutes. Get all your steps just walking around the temple. Uh, One-fifth of the city of Jerusalem was the temple. Uh, From the Kidron Valley below, it was 158 feet to look up. So we brought this rendering of the temple. So from the Kidron Valley, the shadow part, if you were looking up, it's 158 feet. That's why when Satan tells Jesus, just drop, fall from the temple and the angels will catch you, he's talking about a massive jump. The rocks used to build it are 12 feet by 12 feet by 40 feet long. A single stone would have weighed 400 tons. This is a massive building. And the Jewish people, the Israelites, they believed that the existence of the temple was proof that God's favor was upon them. So there's this theme in Jesus' teaching that applies to the temple itself. Uh, You see, Jesus has pity on people who don't believe in God and they turn away from God. Jesus, he weeps over them, but it seems that Jesus has no pity for the ruin of a great building. These massive and durable stones, they do not have a good uh, fate in front of them, and Jesus doesn't seem to care. Uh, Because he's publicly already said, tear down the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. So Jesus is okay with the old temple going away. Why? Because the temple itself had become an idol. It had become a place where people were trusting. Instead of trusting God, they were trusting the temple. They were trusting the rituals performed in the temple instead of their relationship with God. And Jesus knows. He's like, the temple will no longer be central to faith. I am going to be central to faith. And so because the temple was an idol, God took it away. He took it away. You you think this building is so beautiful and so durable, but it's going to be destroyed, Jesus says. And the truth is, it, it was destroyed. In AD 70, under the Roman future emperor Titus, the temple is completely destroyed, stone by stone, overturned, absolutely plummeled. Only six years after its completion. Temple is completed, AD 64. AD 70, the temple is destroyed. It does not stand. It is not durable. And Jesus knew it. And he's telling his disciples that following the rituals of the temple is not the same as following me. That temple can fall and you can still have faith in me. So he's, he's a prophet in that moment. So this shakes up the disciples, as you can imagine. So verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, so now they're up high looking over the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what are the signs that they're about to be fulfilled? So this is, this is remarkable to the disciples because they had an eschatology. The disciples had an end-time way of thinking. It was a fourfold eschatology, how the world was going to end. Number one, significant turmoil would happen. That's what's happening with the Romans. So they got that. Chapter one, good. Part two, someone like Elijah would be a forerunner for the Messiah. That's John the Baptist. So they're like two for two. Number three, a Messiah would come and establish the kingdom. That's Jesus. They're like, we're killing it. Three out of three. Number four, scattered Jews would come back to Israel in the temple. That's number four. And Jesus just said the temple's going to be destroyed. So they're like, hey, bro, we're like 75% of the way there. And you just said this whole thing isn't going to happen. What are you talking about? What are the signs of the end of the world? Because you just blew our mind. And so starting in verse 5, he tells them what's going to happen. In verse 5, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. So right out of the gate, when we're talking about the end of the world, Jesus says, Watch out. Watch out that nobody deceives you. When it comes to the end of the world, there's going to be a whole lot of deception. There will be false teachers, there will be false claims, there will be false messiahs, and Jesus is clear, like, hey, before we even get into the details, let me just tell you, be careful. 
There's going to be a lot of lies. There's going to be a lot of divisiveness and a lot of deceit. There's going to be spiritual warfare around this. Many will even come in my name saying, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. That's how deceitful this is. There will be false Christs. There will be false claims about Christ. There will be false teachers proclaiming false Christ. It's all going to be happening, and you don't be deceived. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, uh, John continues this thought when he says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So the promise of Scripture is that every generation will have Antichrist. If, if the uh, anti of Christ is Satan and Satan doesn't know when the second coming of Christ is going to come, then every generation will have Antichrist. And so I googled how many people in the world uh, believe they are the Antichrist. Because <laughs> that's a fun thing to Google. Um, so I did that. Uh, there are a few. There are, there are According to Wikipedia, there are eight people right now that claim to be Jesus Christ. Right now, claim to be Jesus Christ. So when Christ said there will be false messiahs, there will be antichrists, there's eight of them right now. So if you're looking for a false Jesus to follow, you got eight of them right now in the world, according to Wikipedia. If you know another false Christ, you can go on Wikipedia and add their name to the list. It's an open source. Uh, just don't put your spouse, because that's... <laughs> not kind. That's not kind. Don't do that. Um, so as you enter the end of the world conversation, Jesus says, watch out. Okay. So as we enter, watch out. No one, don't let anybody deceive you. Verse seven, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains, beginning of birth pains. So in verse 7, some translations say, don't panic, don't panic. So when you talk about the end of the world, first thing Jesus says is, watch out, don't panic. Watch out, don't panic. He's helping the disciples. Be careful, watch out, don't panic. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. These things have to happen. These, these are not the end, but these are the last days. There's a difference here between the end times and last days. And wars are going to happen. And by the way, just fun fact, wars have been a constant mark of, of human history. Uh, the reality is there's always been wars. And so if you have a friend that's like, man, there's a lot of wars right now, take them to Wikipedia again, which is my go-to resource for all things sermon-related. Uh, <laughs> according to... 3,400 years of human history, 3,400 years of human history, according to Wikipedia, we have been at peace for 268 of 3,400 years. We have been at peace. That's 8% of recorded human history, we have been at peace. So there have always been wars. There have always been rumors of wars. That We have always been fighting. We've had ideological wars. We have pride in the human heart. We have power, hunger. There's always been wars. And so Jesus is saying, don't panic. These are signs of the end times, but not of the, we're not there yet. And so for us, the last days, when Jesus references last days, that's everything after his birth in Bethlehem. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. So I told that to my daughter last night. She's like, what are you preaching about? And I'm like, the end of the world, Harper. And so she's like, what? How long have we been? So the last days have been 2,000 years. And Harper's like, that sounds like a long time. And I told her, I was like, in the Psalms, it says that in heaven, a thousand years is like a day. And she's like, nah, it's only been a couple days. All right, that's cool, <laughs> I guess. And so we don't know. We don't know. 
We don't know. There's so much we don't know when it comes to this. But every generation will face claims about the last days and false Christ about that. And so, listen, church, I'm not saying you shouldn't keep up with what's going on in Israel. I'm not saying you shouldn't keep up with what's going on in the Middle East. That's fine. I'm just telling you what Jesus says, which is be careful, don't panic. There are going to be fears. There's going to be lies. I'm just telling you, be careful. Do not sell everything you own, buy all white clothes, and follow some dude on a mountaintop who claims to be Jesus. Don't do it. History has recorded many people have done it. I get it. It's a temptation for us to get drawn into this stuff, but Jesus says, be careful and don't panic. And I know when we talk about end times that some of you in this crowd right now, you love it. You're like, Josh, I've been waiting for us to talk about end times for a year. I'm so mad it took this long. You need to take the next 10 weeks to talk about it. And some of you are like, bro, I wish I didn't come to church today. Like, why in the world are we talking about this? So I get it. Theologically, there are different like categories of how you believe it's going to play out. Some people would say, I identify as an millennial. Some people were like, man, I'm post-millennial. Like, this already happened. Some people were like, I'm pre-millennial. It hasn't happened yet. But most of us are like, I'm pan-millennial. Josh, it's just going to all pan out, right? <laughs> like, and I ain't got time to think about it. So I just hope it all pans out. Yes, yes, I get it. These are important topics. They're secondary topics, but they're important. We should drink coffee and talk about these things. It will be good. But listen to me. We have to be careful. Be careful. Some of you think about the end of the world too much, and some of you don't think about the end of the world enough. Be careful. We all got that one friend that thinks about it all the time, that's sending you articles about what China is and what Russia is, and they're like, man, the Euphrates River sure looking like blood to me, Josh. I don't know. And you're like, bro, you're one step away from full-blown conspiracy. <laughs> like, calm down. Have you read Mark 13? They're like, I love Mark 13. I'm like, be careful, don't panic, be careful, don't panic. And some of you are like, I don't want to think about it. Well, Jesus needs us to think about it. So here's the tension that we have to keep in our minds and our hearts. The tension is a bit of a paradox, but here it is. Not yet, be ready. Not yet, be ready. That's the tension. That's the tension Jesus lays out in Mark 13. This is the design God has for his church. Not yet, be ready. Not yet, be ready. There is a near event, the destruction of the temple, A.D. 70, and then there is a far-off event, the coming of Jesus Christ again to this world to judge in power. And Jesus says in verse 8, these are the beginnings of birth pains. Birth pains. Five times the Old Testament uses the terminology birth pains, and it's always about the coming judgment of God. And so Jesus is like, the coming judgment of God is happening. It's on the way. And the birth pains are starting to ratchet up. Now, if you have had a baby or you've been married to someone or been around someone who's had a baby, you know that at the first sign of birth pains, you don't panic. But eventually, the frequency increases and the intensity increases. As the frequency and the intensity increase, you start to pay more attention. You start to time stuff. As the frequency and intensity increase more, you call the doctor. You start to prepare for the hospital. Or if you're a husband, like when she first grabs your hand and it's not too hard, that's no big deal. But when she puts a vice grip on your hand and you fall down, you go to the hospital, right? So that is the design. The, the frequency and intensity increases before the baby is born. So the birth pains of God's judgment are happening. The judgment of God is on the way. The frequency and intensity will grow, but the timetable is not yet, but be ready. It's growing, but it's not yet. But be prepared. Do not be caught off guard by this. And it will increase 
and ultimately it will be in its fullness, and the judgment of God will come to the world. So verse 9, Jesus continues the same thought. You must be on your guard. Be ready. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So this is the design. Before the end will come, before the judgment of God fully comes, the persecution will increase, but the gospel must be preached. So that, that's what's happening simultaneously. So yes, Jesus says, as we get closer to God's judgment, it will become increasingly difficult to be a follower of mine. You will be persecuted. It will be terrible. You will be hassled for following me. Families will turn against each other, but endure. Endure, Jesus says. And some of you will be brought before kings to give testimony about me. Some of you will be brought before rulers and governors to give testimony about me. And when you get brought before those people, don't worry about what to say. Because I'm going to offer you, Jesus promises, a special measure of the Holy Spirit to where the Spirit will speak through you when you are giving testimony about him to rulers in this world. This, this happened in the short term in the book of Acts. They're brought before rulers, the disciples are, and you see that the Holy Spirit speaks through them and it's powerful. I would say that this is happening today in China. I have friends who've been brought before leaders in the persecuted uh, Chinese government and they've spoken and they felt like the Spirit spoke through them. So is this happening today? Did this happen in the past? Will this happen in the future? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And the good news must be preached to the whole world. So is it happening now? Is it happening in the past? Is it happening in the future? Yes. There are people that fight about this and argue about when, where, how, what. To me, I just say it's all fascinating. But the promise of verse 13 is where we have to see Jesus's intent. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. But what's the end? The end is the full coming of God's judgment, the full birth of God's judgment. That's the end. Now, some people take the end to, to reference the rapture. If you have no background in church, this is where it gets weird. So I'm just going to tell you. Uh, the rapture is this beautiful promise that at some point, Jesus will return and supernaturally take his church, take his people with him out of this world. So that's the idea of the rapture. So if you think this is fun, come back next week. We're going to talk about it a lot more because that's where Jesus goes after this. But we're going to stop right now. So the idea is the trumpet's going to sound and the people who follow Jesus are going to be raptured out of this world. And, and how Christ will return, will it be this way? Will it be that way? Will it be in the future? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. If people know, if people act like they know, I would not trust them. I'd be like, wow, that's a little too strong of an opinion on something Jesus leaves to mystery. So uh, the rapture is something I, I want to be a little bit more lighthearted about. So you maybe have seen a bumper sticker that says this. It says, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Anybody ever seen that bumper sticker? Are those still out there in the world? So the idea when you're driving on the eight and you see that car, you're like, uh, oh, that person's a Christian. They're being kind to me. If like I hear a trumpet sound, I better watch out for that car because the person driving won't be in there. Um, and what's sad is like the world has responded to that bumper sticker with this one, which says, come to rapture, can I have your car? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a sad truth that the world is like, hey, it'd be better if the Christians were gone. So 
Um, when, when you enter this space, recognize that Jesus understands the complexity here, and he's trying to make it make sense for us. So uh, in college, uh, I, was, I was drawn back to a, a metaphor my professor would use when we talk about the end times. And so my professor in college, Dr. Bob Utley, he would say this. When he talked about the end, when he talked about how this is all going to play out, Dr. Bob would say, um, there's a calendar on the wall of heaven. There's a calendar on the wall of heaven. And there's a date circled on that calendar. And the date says, send my son back to collect the family. And so there will be excitement in heaven as Jesus comes to the end to call his people, those who put their faith in him. And so Jesus knows this and he's making clear to his disciples what's going to happen. And he's intending to give them hope. I think what's hard for me is the end time narrative often makes people feel scared, makes people feel afraid. I mean, I'm literally reading Revelation with a flashlight in my bedroom trying to get afraid. But the more you study Mark 13, is this, the design is Jesus is giving his disciples hope. He's giving his disciples assurance. There are more pastoral imperatives in Mark 13 than any other chapter in the book of Mark. Jesus is pastoring his disciples. He's He's being gracious to his disciples. He's shepherding his disciples. And, and I start to think, why? why? Why is he pastoral in his tone? He's both urgent and pastoral in his tone. Why? And then I start to recognize the, the, the timeline of Jesus, that this is the last week of Jesus' life in Mark 13. And so why would Jesus warn them with such pastoral urgency? Well, maybe it's because he knows that in a couple of days, the unimaginable is going to happen. This is one of the last conversations Jesus has with his disciples. And he knows that in a couple of days, he is going to be betrayed. In a couple of days, he's going to be falsely accused and wrongly tried. And he's going to be brought before the Roman officials. He's going to be exchanged for a criminal named Barabbas. He's going to be publicly beaten and humiliated in front of everyone. They're going to put a crown of thorns on his head, making fun of him. They're going to put a robe on his back, making fun of him. They're going to pull out his beard. All of this is going to happen in a couple of days. And ultimately, he is going to be put on a cross and lifted up for the world to see and be humiliated. Ultimately, he is going to die publicly in our place and be placed in a tomb. And then a few days later, raise victorious over death itself. Jesus knows that that's coming in a couple of days. So on the Mount of Olives, he warns his disciples with urgency because he knows the passion narrative is coming. And in so doing, warning his disciples, he's also warning anyone who would listen. And here's the warning. Church, this life we have is precious, but it's on a clock. This world we have is precious, but it's on a clock. And we are living on borrowed time. And the Bible says God is being patient with us. He's being patient because he loves us so much and he wishes no one would perish but all would come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And in the scriptures, God is doing everything imaginable to draw people to the knowledge of Christ. And even when persecution comes, Jesus is clear, the gospel still has to go out to the ends of the earth. People need to know what I'm going to achieve for them. People need to know what I have done so they can be saved. So yes, there is a lot of uncertainty about the second coming of Christ. No doubt about it, but there is something crystal clear in this passage. Jesus is promising to us God's judgment is on the way. But those who stand firm will be saved. 
God's judgment is on the way. He says it lovingly, pastorally, shepherding them. God's judgment is on the way. And those who stand firm will be saved. So the question is, stand firm on what? And saved from what? So when you're told by Jesus, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm, you'll be saved from God's judgment. Stand firm. What is, what is he talking about? I'll tell you what he's not talking about. Jesus is not telling you, stand firm on your good works. Stand firm on your religious accomplishments. Stand firm on your morality. Stand firm on your achievements. Stand firm on the temple, the the rituals that are done in the temple. Stand firm on the religious leaders. Stand firm on the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the Herodians, or, or all these other religious leaders. Stand firm on them. Jesus does not say that. He doesn't say stand on any of that stuff. Because all of that stuff will not save you. That stuff enslaves you. That stuff is the problem to begin with. Because religion always wants more. Religion is never satisfied. It's a treadmill. It's exhausting. Because the truth is, you can never do enough to save yourself. And you know it. And I know it. And we feel it. And so we've tried everything imaginable. But it doesn't work That's why Jesus came into this world to begin with. That's why he lived a sinless life. That's why he died in our place. That's why he rose again from the dead. Because listen to me, church, you can't. You can't. But the empty promise of religion is it whispers to you, yes, you can. Yes, you can. God's mad at you anyway, so do more religious activity. That'll make God happy with you. God's ashamed with your past, so do more good works, and then God won't be so ashamed with you. Just clean yourself up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do it. You can do it. Religion says you can do it. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you can't. Are you tired of trying? No, you can't. And Satan is so deceitful in that very space Because Satan is not troubled by a moral improvement plan. Satan is not troubled by religion. Satan is not troubled at all by us trying to do it ourselves. Satan has no trouble with that at all. A guy named Michael Horton wrote a book called Christless Christianity, a Christianity that doesn't include Christ. And he posed the question, what would it look like if Satan took over a city? Like if Satan was in charge of a city, what would that city look like? And then he references a pastor from the 1940s named Donald Barnhouse who answered that question. And here's Barnhouse's answer of what would it look like if Satan took over San Diego? Satan was just in charge of San Diego. What would it look like? And here's the answer. Barnhouse said, every bar in the city would have to close if Satan was in charge. Pornography would be banned in the city if Satan was in charge. The streets would be filled With pristine people living pristine lives, children would obey their parents, everyone would say yes ma'am and no ma'am, and there would be no crime, and every church in the city would be packed on every Sunday, but Christ could never be preached. Preachers would stand up before the church, and they would tell everyone, you're a sinner, and you can save yourself, and they would never give them Christ, And they would keep them enslaved to the rules of religion because religion cannot rescue. Now, whether you agree with Barnhouse's illustration or not, I think you can agree that Satan is not troubled by a moral improvement plan. What Satan is troubled by is when Christ is preached, when Christ is held on to firmly, when Christ is the firm foundation of a believer because if Christ is preached and people are set free, 
If Christ is preached, then foundations are firm. If Christ is preached, the enslavement of religion is revealed to be the falsehood that it is. And so in Mark 13, Jesus loves us enough to warn us. And he warns us pastorally. He warns us and says, church, God's judgment is coming. But stand firm. Not on all the false gospels that the world offers you. Stand firm on me. Place your faith in me and be saved. But in this message, there's some good news, bad news. And the bad news is you and I have to agree that we don't measure up. That before a holy, just, righteous God, you and I are absolutely worthy of being condemned. You and I don't measure up and we never could. The Bible says we are dead in our attempts to please God. And the more bad news is that we are on a clock and Jesus will return again to judge us rightfully. Our lives in this world are on a clock and we are desperate for an advocate. Someone who can stand in our place. Someone who can save us from this trouble. And Jesus loves us enough to warn us and say, I have done everything necessary to achieve salvation for you. That's standing firm on Christ, believing that he has done everything necessary to achieve salvation for us. Then the next step of standing firm on Christ is receiving the free gift of grace in the belief that he has done everything necessary to achieve the gift of salvation. That we stand before God as if we have the righteousness of Christ, though we do not have the righteousness of Christ. But we believe it. We believe that he achieved it for us and gifted it to us. That is the good news of the gospel, that I receive what he freely gave. I do not stand before God hoping that he judges me on my own accord. I stand before God hoping he judges me on Christ's accord. Because Christ can stand before God fully confident. If that's true of Christ, then that's true of me. And that's the good news, that we stand firm in that and we are saved. And then Jesus tells us that message must be preached to the ends of the earth. That message must go forward. Even under persecution, even under all of the pressure of this world, that message must go forth. You must love the world enough to tell them that message. And so Grace Church, we come before you saying we love you enough to tell you the message. God's judgment is coming. But if you stand firm on Christ, you will be saved. That's the warning of Mark 13. And we love you enough to tell you that. Uh, I, mean, I remember a few years ago, I was watching a video uh, from a, a famous magician named Penn Gillette. He's a part of the group Penn and Teller, and they have a show in Las Vegas. And Penn has a YouTube channel. Penn is an outspoken atheist, and he would use his YouTube channel to talk about his lack of belief in God and his belief in other things. And so he was an outspoken atheist. And he's really shook up one night on his YouTube channel because someone at his show stuck around to the end and gave him a Bible, knowing that he's an outspoken atheist. And he just talks about, you, you go watch the video, he's, he's visibly shook up by this. And he's like, this guy was so kind to me. He said, Penn, I love your show. I've, I've been to your show three times. And God really put it on my heart to tell you that he loves you. And that if you don't trust Christ, then you're ultimately not going to be eternally with God. And so here's a Bible. I've underlined some verses. I put my phone number in there. I just want to give this to you, Penn, because I want to tell you that God loves you. But judgment's coming, and Christ can save you. And Penn is visibly shook up by this because he's moved by this guy's offer. Now, he is not a follower of Jesus, but here's what Penn said that I'll never forget. Penn, Penn said, if, if I saw you standing in the street and a bus was coming, 
I would call out to you, hey, a bus is coming. Hey, a bus is coming. And if you didn't hear me, eventually that bus is going to barrel down on you. I would run over and tackle you, preventing the bus from hitting you. That was what I would do for you. Why? Because I don't hate you. Because I don't hate you, I'm going to tell you the bus is coming. And then he turns and he says, if you are a follower of Jesus and you believe all this stuff and you don't tell others about it, then you're like a person that's watching a bus coming and saying nothing. And then he says this, Penn, Penn, an outspoken atheist says, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them the good news of Jesus if you really believe in it? And so in Mark 13, we have this promise that Jesus doesn't hate us. He loves us. Loves us enough to warn us and say God's judgment is coming. But fear not. Be assured. I'm going to do everything necessary to achieve your salvation. And I'm going to do everything necessary to secure you in that salvation. You just stay firm in that. And he loves us enough to warn us. If you are not secure in Christ on the day of God's judgment, then you will have no advocate. Jesus loves us enough to warn us. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul takes this beautiful gospel and he applies it to the Roman world and he says this. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means when the judgment of God comes, there's no condemnation coming with it. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the same is also true uh, in the negative. If there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it means that there is condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. And so the offer this morning to grace to all of us is the offer of Romans chapter 8. The offer that you can walk out of your condemnation under the covering of Christ and have no condemnation before God. And it seems loving for us to offer that to you. So this morning, the band's gonna come out, we're gonna continue in worship, but we have a moment right now, we have a moment right now to ask ourselves the question, if you're, if you're here, we believe you're not here on accident, ask yourself the question, do you stand before God condemned in your own good works? Or have you made the decision to come out from under condemnation into the covering of Jesus Christ, the only secure foundation in the world. Have you made that commitment? Because the Bible usually talks about discipleship more than it talks about a decision for Christ, but discipleship towards Jesus always starts with a decision for Christ. And so if you're here this morning, we wanna offer you an invitation to make a decision for Christ. To make a decision and say, I'm gonna decide to come out from under the condemnation of God into the covering of Christ. And we're going to do that by praying together. So church, would you bow your heads and pray with me? I want to pray a couple of different ways this morning. I want to pray for those of you who say you're a believer. I want to pray that you would be secure. And then I want to pray for those of us today who say they are not believers and that they would like to believe. So in order to pray for those who would say they're not believers and that they would like to believe... I want to invite you to do something. If you're here today and you say, Josh, I'm, I'm, I'm new to this whole thing. I'm not a believer, but I'm compelled by Christ and I feel that the Holy Spirit is drawing me and I want to make a decision today, this morning. I've never done it before, but I want to make a decision today to follow Jesus. Then I want to pray for you. In order to do that, would you just lift your head and look at me for a second? If you're here and you say, I've never made a decision to follow Christ, would you look at me so I can pray for you? 
for those of you that are looking at me, pray with me. I'm going to pray this, and you pray this in your heart with me. Pray this. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that I am a sinner. And I believe Christ paid for my sins on the cross. I believe he was buried, and I believe he rose again. I embrace him as my Savior, and I trust him for the forgiveness of my sins. I trust that I stand before you righteous because of Christ's achievement, not mine. I pray you forgive me in Jesus' name.